Michael Rockland worked at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid during the 1960s. He's written a memoir of his experiences titled An American Diplomat in Franco Spain, filled with amusing anecdotes and illuminating stories of historic, historical events. And Michael Rockland joins us from our studios in Boston at WGBH. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Mindy. Now, you start your book with a chapter titled How I Managed Not to Shake Hands with Francisco Franco, uh, which is a humorous story, but it also reminds us that when you served as an assistant cultural attaché in Madrid in the 1960s, Spain was a fascist dictatorship. So tell us a little bit more about Franco Spain and how you did avoid shaking his hand. Yeah, well, um, it was interesting because the U.S. had three major bases uh, in Spain, which had to do with really the, the Soviets and had to do with the Cold War, nuclear bases. and uh, But I was sort of working the other side of the street as a cultural attaché. My job was to to really cultivate democratic forces and uh, look for interesting people, intellectuals, uh, artists, writers. Uh, um, so in a sense, I was working at cross-purposes for from what the embassy itself was doing. Mm-hmm. And tell us the story and, uh, about, yeah. About, oh, yeah, that <laughs> was great. Uh, uh, <laughs> the ambassador uh, received an invitation to the Spanish National Art Show, and he didn't want to go, and he passed it on down to the minister who kept passing it down and down. And then finally, I was the youngest, the most junior guy at the embassy, so so uh, I had to go. There was nobody I could pass it to. And I wanted to go because m- many of my friends was, were artists uh, uh, in Spain, Spanish artists, and... And so I went, uh, and the first thing that struck me when I got to it uh, was that there were no artists there at all. It was just a bunch of generals standing around. Mm. I thought, that's kind of peculiar. I think my friends knew something I didn't know. And we're standing around looking at the pictures. My, all the other embassies were, were represented by ambassadors. I was this guy in his 20s, young, and... and um, and all of a sudden, the chief, the Spanish chief of protocol, asked us all to get into a line. And I got into this line and didn't think much of it. And then I looked down the way and I thought, uh-oh, here comes Franco. Uh, I, I had no idea that he would be coming to this art show. Uh, and he was going down the line of diplomats, shaking hands with them and conversing with each one. And I was really in a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because I just wasn't going to shake hands with a fascist on the uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was representing the embassy. Uh, I didn't know what to do. He was getting closer and closer. And, and so finally, I, I realized, gee, right behind me, there's a kind of a portable wall with a few pictures on it. And I kind of oozed out of the line and got behind this, this uh, screen or panel that had some some of the pictures from the show on it. And very afraid because uh, I thought maybe... Uh, the Spaniards had seen me or or maybe it would be ported to the embassy. Uh, and then when I saw Franco go by, I simply oozed back into the, came out from behind the screen and oozed back into the line again. Um, and uh, Franco was already past me. And so <laughs> it was kind of a wonderful and funny, yeah. funny event. I, I was afraid somebody had seen me would report it. Uh, I'd be 
persona non grata and kicked out of the country the next day. Or that didn't happen. Complained to the embassy, but nobody saw me. So, yeah. so clever uh, thinking. Maybe I should have been a spy instead yeah, quick of quick on your feet, right? <laughs> yes, it was. It was a wonderful thing that that screen was there because I don't know what I would have done yeah. if it hadn't been there. Talk a little bit about why you decided to become a, a diplomat. What you know, what prompted you uh, into service? Um, and and the fact I thought this was interesting because I, I think everybody knows who Edward R. Murrow is, and we think of his his uh, you know career as a newsman, but we don't think about much what he did after. But he was your boss sure. technically, right? Yes, uh, it, that was wonderful. Uh, it, it began with Kennedy, really. Uh, when Kennedy asked, asked not what you, when Kennedy said in his inaugural, asked not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. I was one of those people who said, "Here I am, Jack." Uh, and uh, and then when Edward R. Murrow left CBS Television, and he was a great hero of mine. After all, he was not just a great. Uh, broadcast journalist, but he's the guy as much as anyone who brought down Joseph McCarthy. And so uh, uh, he was going to be my boss and Kennedy was going to be his boss. And suddenly being in the government and especially in the diplomatic service was was wonderful. It was, mm. uh, there was a lot of idealism associated with that uh, uh, government, which I had never really thought about before, right. was suddenly very attractive to me. Now, uh, although the practice of bullfighting in Spain is is in decline, it was very much alive when you were there. Uh, you tried your hand at bullfighting and ran with the bulls. So tell us why you. <laughs> I mean, it's not such a barbaric sport in 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 a way, but um, you're sorry to see it disappearing from Spanish culture. Tell us why. Yeah, we, well, it's one thing that makes Span, Spanish culture different than other cultures. Uh, it has disappeared in Catalonia. Not to mention Catalonia may disappear from Spain mm-hmm. soon. Um, uh, I, I, I'm very aware of animal rights people and PETA and, and how they feel about this sort of thing. Uh, but it seems to me unless you're a vegetarian, unless you simply don't uh, – actually, unless you're a vegan and you not only don't uh, eat meat uh, and you don't, you don't use leather, then I would argue that uh, cows uh, or cattle being slaughtered in slaughterhouses is far less humane in some ways mm-hmm. – uh, than than bullfighting and bullfighting was just simply, simply so characteristic of Spanish culture. So uh, Spain becoming like other countries in, in this regard to me is a loss. Uh, yeah, and I tried it one time at a thing called a tienta where amateurs could go, and they'd be little bulls with uh, with uh, padded horns, and I had my little red cloth and. I tried to stand my ground, and this little bull, which was really a calf, was coming at me full gallop. And I, but anyway, uh, he didn't pay any attention to my red cloth. It hit me square. I went flying through the air. I decided, well, okay, I, You're not I guess I'm not be a bullfighter bull exactly. after all. I'm going to have to give up this career. <laughs> yeah, we're talking with Michael Rockland. His book is An American Diplomat in Franco, Spain. In 1968, you got word that Martin Luther King Jr. was arriving in Madrid, and the ambassador had asked you to accompany him during his visit. But by the time you found out he was coming, his plane had already landed, and you had no idea where he was staying. So tell us how you found him and his reaction when you first got him on the phone. Right, it was it was it was a wonderfully comic. Uh, we don't associate comedy with Martin Luther King, but it was a comic event. Um, his plane had already arrived, as you said, and I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I started to call one of Madrid's five hundred uh, uh, hotels, uh, one after another, after another. I didn't know what else to do. Uh, 
because uh, I'd promised the ambassador that I would look after him. He was there for a day of, of R&R, really. He had been with the Pope, Paul VI, the day before, and he would win the Nobel Peace Prize two weeks later. Uh, but he was in Madrid just to uh, have a day off. And uh, I had written my MA thesis on the Montgomery bus boycott in 56, which first brought Martin to uh, world attention. And so when the ambassador gave me this assignment, I, I was thrilled. But now I had to find him. So I I don't know why I, did, I didn't call this hotel first. It was the one that was right across the street from the embassy. And I had this uh, ridiculous conversation with the desk clerk. Uh, uh, I said, is there a Dr. King staying here? And he said, aquí no tenemos médicos. I said, we don't have any doctors here. I said, no, 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 forget the doctor thing. And then he said, how do you say king in uh, Spanish? I said, Ray. He said, well, we've never had a king here. One time we had a duke or a (laughs) count, but we've never had a king here. No, I said, his name is King. Would you please look at the register? And he looked at the register and he said, oh, yeah, he said, some black guy. Well, in Spanish, it's sort of more poetic. It's un tío negro, a, a black uncle. I don't know why. Uh, 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 they use the word uncle the way we used the word guy. Yeah, some black guy checked into the hotel a while ago. He didn't know who King was. And then I knew that's where he was. And I, I raced over there and I called Dr. King from the lobby uh, and I woke him up. He had he had come to Spain. He couldn't speak a word of Spanish. He had a little piece of paper with the name of the hotel and gave, gave it to the cab driver, went up to his room and went to sleep. And when I called him, I woke him up, and I told him who I was, uh, uh, trying to get all of this in as quickly as possible. And his first response was, was, I'm sorry I don't speak Spanish. And I said, well, this isn't Spanish. This is English. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from the New York area, and he's in the South. He thought, since he wasn't fully understanding me, this must be Spanish. (laughs) So, so, So after I said it more slowly, he said, come on up. I knocked on his door, and he came to the door in his white boxer shorts. So this is this is because he'd been taking a nap. Right. So here I am meeting Martin Luther King in his in his underpants. Uh, that's was funny. A, it was, this is a, a really interesting uh, chapter in the book too. Uh, obviously, Martin Luther King has become an icon in American history and culture. But your experience sure. with him in Madrid in the 1960s serves as a reminder that along with all their strengths and gifts, iconic figures are also human. Yes. Oh, yeah. He was all too human. Uh, uh, the first thing I did was go get some medicine for his diarrhea. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we, we idealize people, and and uh, or we, or he certainly deserves to be idealized. But but he was very very human in every single regard, and it was one of the great thrills of my life uh, uh, because. Uh, uh, here I am with Martin Luther King, and you know my students. I'm, since I'm a college, university professor, my students. If I talk about King, you know they've got King and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Everything from the past is 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 all telescoped together. But of course, he was so vital and and so important mm. to me. Right. And we spent the whole day together, about ten, eleven hours, just hanging out mm-hmm. uh, in Madrid and talking about his life and my life and. Um, it was I had to shake myself sometimes to remember I was talking to this 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 very very great man because mm. he was just like 
a buddy who's yeah. like a friend right. uh, during that time. It was a and it was a thrill that it was that way. Students, a lot, my students, all said, "Well, did, did you get his autograph? <laughs> uh, did, did did you get a did you get a signed picture?" Uh, from him, I say, "No, I, I wouldn't have asked for that. Uh, we were we were friends." And then when he was killed, it, it wasn't just that a great American was killed. It, my friend was killed. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was especially painful to me. Right. Uh, uh, and that was several years later. Right. We're talking with Michael Rockland. His book is An American Diplomat in Franco Spain. You devote an entire chapter of the book to food. Uh, in the 1960s, we have to remember the food landscape in the United States was very different to what it is now. Outside of yes. major urban areas, it wasn't so easy to find ethnic or gourmet restaurants. Uh, And so what an unexpected and kind of delicious surprise to arrive in Spain where food is such an integral part of the culture. Uh, And this is is where you say you were introduced to gastronomic pleasure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, In fact, I I, I make a point of saying that I think that the country in the world that's most overrated in terms of its food and wine is France and Spain, perhaps the most underrated. I I love Spanish cuisine and... uh, uh, this is what we make in my house uh, in New Jersey. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is Spanish food a lot of lot of the time? Um, in fact, in a recent survey, uh, three of the top restaurants in the of the top five in the world are Spanish, and a fourth is in the top ten. And there isn't a single French one until you get to number eleven. Mm-hmm. There's even an American one within the top ten. So I, I think France may have been a great uh, culture in terms of food and painting and whatnot, but uh, it, it can't compare to Spain, in, right. my, in, in my estimation. And you have some, some great stories there about Spanish love affair with garlic. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I didn't know garlic, really, till I got to Spain. And at my first uh, cocktail party, there was a man standing about one inch off my nose uh, Americans don't stand that close to people. We keep a certain distance. The British uh, keep even a greater distance, but uh, the Spaniards will stand an inch or so away from you. Uh, uh, I figure if somebody's standing an inch or so away from me, they they either want to beat me up or make love <laughs> to me. But 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 it, it, it's uh, but but in addition, uh, uh, he of course had had. Uh, lots of garlic and 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 it was it was it was it was simply killing me. I and I kept backing up, and he kept slowly. I didn't want to insult him, and he kept staying an inch or so off my nose uh, as I backed up. He kept coming with me. Um, of course, now I am a confirmed uh, garlic uh, uh, eater. In fact, uh, sometimes when I do programs. Uh, about this new book of mine, I wear a T-shirt that my daughter gave me that 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 says I eat garlic or I love garlic. Um, uh, I mean, the problem with garlic is that if everybody eats garlic, which is the case in Spain, nobody notices right. anything wrong wrong with anybody else's breath. But if one person doesn't, one person doesn't. It, yeah. it, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you can lose all your friends. Exactly. So I, I would really like to go into business someday, and, and uh, I'm joking, but but uh, and put out bumper stickers and pins, let's say, that say I eat garlic, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and then you could identify yourself, and yeah. people wouldn't think you had terribly uh, bad sanitation. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's why you smell so bad. Um, yeah. You know, in this whole, anytime you're in a, a different country, you've got that whole culture to uh, to learn and absorb. And one of the things that's really different there is tipping. Tipping in Spain is really different than in the United States. Um, 
And you say if we adopted the Spanish model of tipping, we might be a happier com- country. Tell us why. I think so, but I, I'd go even further. I, 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 in, in Spain, when you uh, receive your bill, you say you pay in cash and you get some change. If it's just a little bit of change, you just sort of leave it on the table. Uh, you know, uh, I know Americans who go out to eat and they take calculators with mm-hmm. them. They've got, they've got to calculate their 15 or their 18 or their 20 percent or whatever it is. They've got to get it just right. I don't think we need that kind of anxiety. I, I like it even better in Asia, where, uh, certainly in Japan and Korea, uh, two countries I recently lectured in, uh, where you are not allowed to tip. A tip is considered mm-hmm. an insult. Uh, bellhops, uh, taxi drivers, uh, restaurants, uh, they simply won't take it. I'll shove it back to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wish we would pay people adequately and that we could get rid of this tipping thing. We imagine that if we don't tip, we don't get good service. But the point is that in Spain, where tipping is just a sort of a casual thing, and in Asia, where you don't do it at all, the service is, if anything, certainly as good, if not better. So I think that's that's a mistake to think that tipping makes service better. All it does is make the whole eating out experience uh, less memorable. It's going to be a math whiz. worrying all the time. <laughs> am I tipping too much? Am I tipping yeah, exactly. not enough? Am I tipping? It, it's, well, that, it's, uh, it's an interesting I, point that when you talk about uh, Japan and you've actually had people chase after you out the door going, no, here, you, you, this is, you forgot yeah. your change. Because, yeah. it, it's it, again, they t- look at themselves as a professional. This is a, their career. They're a professional you know, waiter or, or you know, bellhopper or taxi driver, uh, and they want sure. to be treated that way. So you're right. If we, you pay them... As a you know a professional in whatever job that is, the, the, you know the tips are. It's almost like a bribe. Yeah, yeah. tips tips are almost <laughs> like a bribe. Although uh, although you give it after the fact. Yeah, uh, although there is a, you have a funny story about the firemen who were summoned to put out the peaking duck. Right, right. That was the one time when I was apparently supposed to tip, and uh, uh, I I called the firemen, but I managed to put out the fire myself. By the time they arrived, the fire was over. But they all came into my house. And Spanish firemen were uh, centu- like what looks very much like Roman centurion hats. Uh, uh, and uh, they all came in, and all these firemen in my house, and they were still there. And, and I said, it's okay, the fire's out. But they stayed and stayed. And, and, and finally, I don't know, I broke out food. I broke, <laughs> broke out wine and broke out everything I had and, and uh, kept giving them uh, stuff. And, and we were having this kind of party. And it went on for about an hour or so. And, and uh, I kept wondering, don't they have something to do back at the station house? Aren't there any other fires? Uh, 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 and they just kept staying and staying. And finally, uh, they shook hands uh, and left. And uh, it did seem as if they, when they shook hands, it was less than enthusiastic. Uh, um, I thought I'd been very nice to be a host when there was nothing for them to do and to, to have served them. Also, when I was giving them wine and booze and everything else, uh, everything that I had in the house, I thought, uh, oh, gee, maybe they shouldn't be drinking while they were on <laughs> duty. But they, they were very happy to be drinking, or, or in any case, they were drinking. And they left and... Uh, uh, a neighbor, a Spanish friend neighbor who had been there all this time, uh, uh, when they left, I asked him, uh, what was that about? He said, well, what'd you give them? I said, well, you saw what I gave them. He said, no, but how much did you give them as a, as a tip? I said, I was supposed to tip the fireman? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it is funny. Uh, I mean, it's so funny. You don't tip the waiter necessarily, but you're supposed you to tip, tip the fireman. The, right? <laughs> tip the fireman. Uh, they were waiting for the tip. Waiting for their tip. I said, well, goodness, I, I must have given about $100 worth of stuff. <laughs> and who and knew? Well, All I had to do was give them a $10 bill or something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they're waiting for in, in, right. in, in, in Spanish money. They were waiting for something like that. And, mm-hmm. and it never occurred to me that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> one of the, one of the most surprising stories in your book is about the collision of an American B-52 bomber with a fuel tanker that resulted in the dropping of four hydrogen bombs on coastal Spain in 1966. Tell us about the circumstances that led up to that. Uh, and, and and this was really top secret. No, not even the ambassador didn't know these flights were taking place. Yes, and it really underscores the notion, if we really want to insist on uh, on uh, civilian control of the military, the ambassadors, after all, the president's representative in a particular country. And anyway, we used to. It's no longer top secret, so we can speak about it. Uh, and, uh, and, and by the way, neither I nor the ambassador knew this was even going on. Um, we used to send squadrons of three B-52s every six hours towards the Soviet border, and they'd fly around in what was called the fail-safe position. That was the name of a novel and of a movie, fail-safe, and I always thought it was just the name they made up, but it was the actual name, and uh, I learned. And on the way over to Spain, they would be uh, these three B-52s would have their tanks topped up and they'd, they'd go towards the Soviet border. Basically, we were saying to the Soviets, we have three bombers with four hydrogen bombs each aboard, at your border, 24-7-365. Now, may, they may have been doing similar things to us. I really don't know whether they were or they weren't. Uh, and on the way over, they'd top up the tanks uh, in the air with KC-135 tankers, but on the way back from having flown around in circles uh, 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 off the Soviet border, they really needed to be fill up, filled up or they couldn't have limped back into the States. And so uh, what happened one day is that in one case of one of the bombers in the squadron of three, uh, it came up too close to the KC-135 tanker and the tanker exploded and there was a, a flame, uh, flames in the sky. Uh, the people in this little town down below, Palomares, a uh, very small town that grew, grew tomatoes, thought it was the end of the world. It sort of looked like the end of the yeah. world. Um, and these, uh, 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 everybody on the KC-135 tanker was incinerated and half of the airmen on the B-52 were killed also, but uh, that eight of them and four of them ejected. The bombs, uh, we learned later, were not armed, which means that uh, it, it's a device and you have to do six or seven things in a row, two people in a certain order, two people, two airmen doing it together, only under the express orders of the President of the United States. And uh, the codes changed every day as to the order in which these things had to be done. Uh, it's why we've often seen the president, I don't know if we still do in the Missile Age, uh, we'd see an airman always going with the president of the United States with a little black bag, almost mm-hmm. like a doctor's bag, uh, and in there were the codes. Uh, so the bombs luckily were unarmed. The bombs, the four on this particular plane, and each of these bombs was 75 times more powerful than Hiroshima or Nagasaki mm. with dealing with bombs, which had they uh, gone off uh, in a, as, as nuclear bombs, would have wiped out half the world. I mean, yeah. it would have been a, a catastrophe uh, of, of, of immeasurable proportions.
proportions. Um, well, the bombs were ejected, too, and they came down by parachute. Uh, one of them uh, they couldn't find. Uh, it took them 81 days until they finally found it. Three of them came down on this little town. The one that was lost was out in the Mediterranean somewhere, and the three that came down came down in this town. Um, one of them came down intact, but the parachute of the other two was badly singed or burned, and they came down too fast, and uh, apparently nuclear devices also contain a certain amount of of uh, conventional explosives, dynamite mm. or something like that, that set the whole thermonuclear thing mm. uh, going. Uh, but when they came down, uh, these, these conventional explosives uh, uh, sp- uh, went off and split open two of the bombs, uh, and all the plutonium came out. The plutonium, in other words, being right. the, the raw materials of the nuclear explosion, but the little... Uh, Black clouds uh, came out, and uh, and now we had a a, a, a real disaster here. Because, International incident is what you have. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was it was the biggest story in in the world uh, for several months. Uh, the Russians, of course, accused us of dropping these four hydrogen bombs on Spain on purpose. Um, uh, th- that wasn't true, but w- but it was still a catastrophe mm-hmm. because the town was irradiated. Uh, that people had to be washed down in all kinds of ways and and had to have medical attention uh, over the next 25 years. Um, and uh, so the, 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 the plutonium, uh, we had to clear, clean out the whole town. We mm. pulverized every house. The people left buck naked. They, mm. they left with no possessions, no clothing, no nothing. Wow. And everything in the town was uh, uh, bulldozed and pulled together and put into 55-gallon drums by the many thousands. And if anybody would like to visit the original town, uh, they'd have to go up the Savannah River between South Carolina and Georgia. And there on the bank, uh, uh, banks of the Savannah River, there's a quarry, and that quarry is sealed up uh, with these uh, 5,500 uh, uh, yeah. drums. Mm. Uh, at least I hope it's seen. <laughs> I hope so too. I mean, yeah, because <laughs> right. let's face it, that stuff has a, a half life of two hundred and fifty thousand years. Mm. Um, so I don't. Uh, oh, and uh, so this all happened a long time ago. Um, but Palomares, the town, was back in the news recently, where it was discovered that there was one hot spot. By the way, the whole town was rebuilt, new mm-hmm. houses, new soil down to three feet down. For years, people wouldn't buy the tomatoes of Palomares. Yeah, I can't blame uh, them. And, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and uh, so the U.S. had to subsidize these farmers all those years. Uh, we thought it was over, uh, but recently I saw an item in a paper saying they discovered a hot spot that never was remediated back then uh, all these years ago. And uh, so, uh, in fact, Hillary Clinton had something to say about it mm-hmm. recently, saying that we will clean it up. Uh, uh, but it's it's a it's a tragedy that yeah. we didn't get it all back then. Well, there's lots of great stories that we don't have time to get to, unfortunately. Um, but it's uh, it, you know we learned a lot about some things we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know Dr. Shivago wasn't you know who knew Dr. Shivago was filmed in 
in uh, Spain, and and your son had a part in that. Uh, He's a little saucer. So. <laughs> exactly. And um, the snow is fake. The snow too. is That's fake, so we learn all these and things. And the daffodils that... <laughs> are made out of plastic. <laughs> Except for one, right? <laughs> Michael Rockland, his, one, his yeah. book is An American Diplomat in Franco, Spain. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's really a pleasure, Mindy. Also, thanks to Margaret Carsley and Jane Pippick for production assistance at WGBH. I'm Mindy Todd. Thank you for listening. The Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. We're also on Facebook at The Point, WCAI. The Point is produced by Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Steve Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH.